<laughs> oh, we're just, bam, we're on the go right now. Uh, okay, we're here with our regenerative podcast, pod, I can't even speak today, podcast uh, bunch, our trio. And uh, we're, I think we're going to start by continuing on with, uh, since Valentine's is coming up, we're kind of doing a little bit of a ramp up for Valentine's. Uh, last episode, we were talking about the lovely prickly rose with Dan. Um, so this time, if we can continue on with another uh, plant adventure guide, I was going to talk about uh, Aurelia nuticollis, the wild sarsaparilla. So take a wild guess why I chose this one. Anyway. Why? Why? <laughs> you didn't even Is guess. <laughs> you didn't even guess. It's, no. Is um, <clears throat> it red? Not too grow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's Valentine's related, Isn't sarsaparilla right? the symbol of love, right? Sure, sure. Okay. No, actually, um, especially with indigenous cultures, it's got a reputation for being an aphrodisiac. Oh, I don't need that. But, um, so I did some research because, of course, there's, there's the science medicine and then there's the, you know, uh, kind of other medicine. <laughs> And as much as I like things to be true, uh, I, I like to back it up with some science. Um, so I guess, first of all, we'll talk about um, a little bit about the description of what, what wild sarsaparilla looks like if you're out in the woods. Um, it is in the ginseng family. So that might be part of why people think it has some of these abilities, because ginseng is known for having some, um, you know, fairly powerful features, especially when you're boosting your immune system and that kind of thing. Um, it's not exactly the same, but it is a member of the family, so maybe, right? Um, it is an interesting plant because most of the time you don't really notice it's there. And then all of a sudden it has these, uh, you know, tall stick stems and these umbrella uh, type leaves, like a kind of like, a, what do you call it? Com compound leaves. That's what I'm trying to think of. Compound leaves that make kind of an umbrella on top and they're slightly serrated, but they're fairly big leaves for the size of the plant. Um, and then it secretly shoots up a second stem that's just a little bit shorter than the first one. And that's where it will form these greenish whitish flowers, which then go on to become these uh, uh, fruits that start off kind of red and then they turn this kind of blue purple when they're really ripe. Um, so it's quite the interesting life cycle that this plant has. It also spreads rhizomatically, like a lot of our woodland plants like to, um, probably to enable it to get access to things like nutrients or um, water or light sources, whatever the plant needs, right? Um, so it's roughly 30 to 60, 60 centimeters or, or 12 inches to, to 2 feet tall when it's mature. Um, and the secondary stems are actually called scapes, just like uh, garlic, hey? So that's kind of interesting. And... Wait, sorry, say that again? Yeah, so this, the secondary stems, the ones that shoot up the, the flowers and the fruits, are called scapes as well, just like mm -hmm. the, uh, the garlic scapes. So I thought that was interesting. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I should know that, but... <laughs> Well, I mean, that part was new to me, actually. I mean, I knew they had the secondary stems, but had no idea they were called scapes. So you always learn something, even us once in a while. Um, so yeah, um, a lot of the indigenous cultures have used it for a energy 
plant. So runners would chew it before they go on running between uh, different uh, tribes or whatever. Uh, and also because it's thought to be a libido increaser, especially for guys. Um, now, part of this might be because it, there isn't a lot of research scientifically yet, but uh, there are some things out there that suggest it might be an adaptogen. Do either of you know what an adaptogen is? I do not. No, is it? Okay, an adaptogen basically helps your body to adjust to different stressors. So whether it's physical, chemical, <laughs> pretty much that says it. All. <laughs> um, so adapts to um, physical, chemical, or mental stresses. So it's a it's a balancer. Uh, quite often, adaptogens will work with other constituents to accomplish this. So in the case of uh, the wild sarsaparilla, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of times people will use it with things like sassafras and ginseng in a tea. Well, by, by themselves, they might not have as much influence, but they seem to have adaptogen-like properties when they work with each other. So that, you know, strength in numbers, I guess. <laughs> um, and so it may enable other drugs to be more easily absorbed um, and may therefore also work as a companion aphrodisiac. So maybe by taking something like sassafras and ginseng along with the wild sarsaparilla, it may have certain uh, properties that enable it to become a stimulant and energy producer. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they do have to do some more research to find out to what extent, because a lot of these plants we find out, yes, they've got, they've totally got the abilities, but you've got to um, ingest so much of it to get the effect, or it only works in certain, um, certain timeframes or certain parts of the plants only, only work, right? So, so they got to do some more work with that, but it is very interesting. Um, it'd be, I think it would be really cool if they could back it up and actually be able to say, yeah, yeah, the indigenous people were right. This does have some cool properties uh in the meantime it also it does have a cool taste they do substitute it for the traditional uh sarsaparilla which is in the smilax family down in the states um for making root beer type beverages so it does have a similar taste which is nice and uh did you know that even the berries are are edible yes i've had yeah. some you've had some okay so what's your definition of the flavor how, what what would you say the flavor's like? Isn't it pretty bitter? Like I mean, it's it's been a minute. <laughs> and I'm did, terrible to like. I was gonna say, did you did you have unripe berries? <laughs> it, it could have been like. Because uh, I thought they were dark enough, but maybe not. Maybe not. Well, yeah, or maybe I would it think was, they would be sweet. Like it would be. Yes, well, that's they're supposed to be. Um, I've had them, but they've got to be so almost black. They're so purple really dark and just almost when you touch them they start squirting juice they've got to be that ripe but if you have yeah, them then, maybe, maybe, too early. maybe but if you have them then they they should have kind of like a a sweet spicy kind of flavor to them um because hopefully hopefully yours weren't poisoned or something <laughs> I'm still but, here so uh, chances are if you're saying bitter they're probably just a little bit unripe still but uh, yeah, it definitely makes a difference when you pick them. Um, but yeah, so you can use the, the berries for a juice or 
or you can use the roots. Generally, the roots are harvested in the in the fall because uh, most root crops, they store all their energy in the roots before winter to prepare them for winter. So that's where you're going to get the most use out of a root versus in the middle of summer, you're going to get this spindly little stick of a root, like there's going to be nothing there. And in the winter, well, for one up here, good luck digging through the frozen ground. <laughs> and then comes spring. <laughs> Um, it's also really hard to find them because there's no, by then there's absolutely no top growth. So you, unless you marked where you saw them last, you will never find them. So, um, but yeah, the, uh, where would I put it? Some of the other cool things are, uh, oh yes. So for wildlife, um, this is one of those plants where different animals tend to gravitate to it at different times of the year as far as eating it or different parts of the plant so the bear they really like the berries um and the caribou will nibble on it uh rough grouse like the the seeds so of course later in the summer early fall kind of thing um and deer are pretty darn smart because they tend to leave it alone except in late spring and that's probably because that's when it's got its most new tender growth on it. And also, guess what? Now the does have fawns to feed, so they're looking for more food sources, right? Maybe they're mm -hmm. looking for some of those adaptogen properties. <laughs> 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 so it's also a good plant for our native pollinators. It may not have really conspicuous flowers and you don't go running around, oh, that's so pretty or whatever, but the, uh, the native pollinators definitely can find it through either smell or visual cues, because it does have those, like I say, greenish yellow, uh, white flowers. And um, also the fact that it's a woodland mm -hmm. plant, the, the pollinators that live in the woodlands, they need food too. Um, it tends to love it the most in semi-shade. And if you noticed, it, it really likes to grow along the edges of woodlands or in um, slightly more open areas like dappled shade in uh, the woodland areas, but if it gets too deep and dark and shady, um, they don't tend to thrive as well. And of course, right out in the blazing sun, they, they really don't like it either. So in that respect, they're, um, probably a little similar to the, uh, the myanthemums because, uh, our star flowered fall Solomon seal tends to do the same sort of thing. And, and also because both of them are rhizomatic, it enables them to stretch out more into places where some of the other woodland plants couldn't go because they either wouldn't get enough water or maybe not quite enough sunlight or whatever, or get baked by the sun. This way it gives them more flexibility, right? So it's, a, it's probably a really good adaptation to uh, live in more areas in the woodlands. So mm -hmm. yeah, um, a few more options too. Yeah. And it also is nice because if you are planning on harvesting the root, um, as long as you do it right, this can be a really sustainable plant. So if you harvest uh, the root portion, take it from the, uh, the more mature side of the plant, so not the side that's producing the flowers and the fruits, and then leave the secondary shoot and it will then it will keep coming back year after year. So um, I think in Manitoba, actually, the the uh, I think it's the government, it's either the government or their provincial agricultural organization, I guess, 
because here we have Ag Alberta. I'm guessing they've got Ag Manitoba or something. Anyway, um, they're actually pursuing it as a commercial crop, which is kind of cool. Interesting. Yeah, I want to hmm. do more of that out here, but it's it's just a long process because it's between uh, the regulations with the food industry and then trying to upscale instead of just being wild foraging into actually cropping the stuff. It's a uh, it's a little different than dropping down some wheat or barley, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's very interesting. So I'm I'm excited to see how how that goes in the next while. And uh, oh, as far as so with all the f the fires that we tend to have nowadays, so this tends to be one of those plants where if it's a light fire, like a very quick comes through quickly, like more like a grass fire, you know. If it mm -hmm. if it comes through it actually can help rejuvenate wild sarsaparilla stands because uh, even though the tops will get burnt off, the rhizomes get stimulated to shoot up more rhizomes, so it will spread more that way after a light fire. Of course, if it was a really intense uh, fire, like a lot of the, the forest fires that were happening in BC last year, then Might it be a little more detrimental. Yeah, it would. Then it would start to crispify the roots and stuff because the the farther below ground that the temperatures go up, the more damage it does. Right. Um, but yeah, in, in quick light fires, it can actually be beneficial. Probably a lot like the um, oh, our fireweed and a lot like a lot of those plants. Right. So anyway, so yeah, for the for light fires. Um, the wild sarsaparilla really benefits, but for heavy fires, like most plants, it's not so good. But, um, and then just kind of sum it up, uh, in general, aphrodisiac plants are more of a, um, I guess, a romantic notion. There's not a lot of scientific evidence to back the aphrodisiac properties of these things like even chocolate like everybody knows about chocolate right oh chocolate's supposed to be great for so sensual uh, yeah so sexy um and and it does actually contain a something's called phenyl ethyl i might be saying that wrong otherwise known as p p e a p e it contains p <laughs> um so anyway even though that's a nervous system stimulant it's absorbed in such small quantities it probably wouldn't do much unless, unless you ate like 500 pounds of chocolate, by which point you'd be so sick and on your deathbed, you probably wouldn't be feeling all that romantic anymore. But yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> a, a lot more scientific studies are needed for a lot of these constituents that they found in the plants and what their effects really are. But the biggest successful attribute seems to be psychological. So if you believe it, you know, it, it will, may work for you. So if, if you feel that strawberries dipped in chocolate, or, <laughs> yeah. So if you feel like strawberries dipped in chocolate are, are sensual and romantic, go for it. If you feel that wild sarsaparilla is romantic, go for it. Just make sure you don't overdo it. Um, and it it's I think it's a lot of it's the effect it has on all of your senses too, because it's it's the taste, the scent, the visual, all those cues together that lead to your more erotic experience. Ta-da! 
Hello? Oh, I don't know why I died. I don't know where I died either. What was the last thing you heard? Burning. Oh, the light burning and the heavy burning. Hi. That yeah, sorry. That one um it muted me by itself. That's really weird. Even the computer doesn't like me. It's okay. So anyway, so yeah, for the for light fires, um the wild sarsaparilla really benefits, but for heavy fires like most plants it's not so good. But um and then just kind of sum it up. Uh, in general, aphrodisiac plants are more of a, um, I guess, a romantic notion. There's not a lot of scientific evidence to back the aphrodisiac properties of these things. Like even chocolate, like everybody knows about chocolate, right? Oh, chocolate's supposed to be great for stuff. Yeah, so sexy. Um, and, and it does actually contain a substance called phenyl Ethyl, ethylamine, I might be saying that wrong, otherwise known as P, P-E-E-A, P -E -E -A. it contains P. <laughs> um, so anyway, even though that's a nervous system stimulant, it's absorbed in such small quantities, it probably wouldn't do much unless you ate like 500 pounds of chocolate, by which point you'd be so sick and on your deathbed, you probably wouldn't be feeling all that romantic anymore. <laughs> But yeah, so um, a, a lot more scientific studies are needed for a lot of these constituents that they found in the plants and what their effects really are. But the biggest successful attribute seems to be psychological. So if you believe it, you know, it, it will, may work for you. So if, if you feel that strawberries dipped in chocolate or... Yeah, so if you feel like strawberries dipped in chocolate are, are sensual and romantic, go for it. If you feel that wild sarsaparilla is romantic, go for it. Just make sure you don't overdo it. Um, and it, it's, I think it's a lot of it's the effect it has on all of your senses too because it's, it's the taste, the scent, the visual, all those cues together that lead to your more erotic experience. Ta-da! All right. So we can cut that one, I guess. Even though it's officially been cut.